Section 11 of Our Old Home. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Our Old Home by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Section 11. Pilgrimage to Old Boston. We set out at a little past eleven and made our first stage to Manchester. We were by this time sufficiently anglicized to reckon the morning a bright and sunny one, although the May sunshine was mingled with water, as it were, and distempered with a very bitter east wind. Lancashire is a dreary county, all at least except its hilly portions, and I have never passed through it without wishing myself anywhere but in that particular spot where I then happened to be. A few places along our route were historically interesting, as, for example, Bolton, which was the scene of many remarkable events in the Parliamentary War, and in the market square of which one of the Earls of Derby was beheaded. We saw along the wayside the never-failing green fields, hedges, and other monotonous features of an ordinary English landscape. There were little factory villages, too, or larger towns, with their tall chimneys, and their pennons of black smoke, their ugliness of brickwork, and their heaps of refuse matter from the furnace, which seems to be the only kind of stuff which nature cannot take back to herself and resolve into the elements, when man has thrown it aside. These hillocks of waste and effete mineral always disfigure the neighborhood of ironmongering towns, and even after a considerable antiquity are hardly made decent with a little grass. At a quarter to two we left Manchester by the Sheffield and Lincoln Railway. The scenery grew rather better than that through which we had hitherto passed, though still by no means very striking, for, except in the show districts such as the Lake Country or Derbyshire, English scenery is not particularly well worth looking at, considered as a spectacle or a picture. It has a real homely charm of its own, no doubt, and the rich verdure and the thorough finish added by human art are perhaps as attractive to an American eye as any stronger feature could be. Our journey, however, between Manchester and Sheffield was not through a rich tract of country, but along a valley walled in by bleak, ridgy hills extending straight as a rampart, and across black moorlands with here and there a plantation of trees. Sometimes there were long and gradual ascents, bleak, windy, and desolate, conveying the very impression which the reader gets from many passages of Miss Bronte's novels, and still more from those of her two sisters. Old stone or brick farmhouses, and once in a while an old church tower were visible, but these are almost two common objects to be noticed in an English landscape. On a railway, I suspect, what little do we see of the country is seen quite amiss, because it was never intended to be looked at from any point of view in that straight line, so that it is like looking at the wrong side of a piece of tapestry. The old highways and footpaths were as natural as brooks and rivulets, and adapted themselves by an inevitable impulse to the physiognomy of the country, and furthermore every object within view of them had some subtle reference to their curves and undulations. But the line of a railway is perfectly artificial, and puts all precedent things at sixes and sevens. At any rate, be the cause what it may, 
there is seldom anything worth seeing within the scope of a railway traveller's eye, and if there were, it requires an alert marksman to take a flying shot at the picturesque. At one of the stations, it was near a village of ancient aspect, nestling round a church on a wide Yorkshire moor, I saw a tall old lady in black, who seemed to have just alighted from the train. She caught my attention by a singular movement of the head, not once only, but continually repeated, and at regular intervals, as if she were making a stern and solemn protest against some action that developed itself before her eyes, and were foreboding terrible disaster if it should be persisted in. Of course it was nothing more than a paralytic or nervous affection, yet one might fancy that it had its origin in some unspeakable wrong, perpetrated half a lifetime ago in this old gentlewoman's presence either against herself or somebody whom she loved still better. Her features had a wonderful sternness, which I presume was caused by her habitual effort to compose and keep them quiet, and thereby counteract the tendency to paralytic movement. The slow, regular, and inexorable character of the motion, her look of force and self-control, which had the appearance of rendering it voluntary, while yet it was so fateful, have stamped this poor lady's face and gesture into my memory, so that, some dark day or other, I am afraid she will reproduce herself in a dismal romance. The train stopped a minute or two to allow the tickets to be taken just before entering the Sheffield station, and thence I had a glimpse of the famous town of razors and pen-knives, enveloped in a cloud of its own diffusing. My impressions of it are extremely vague and misty, or rather smoky, for Sheffield seems to me smokier than Manchester, Liverpool, or Birmingham, smokier than all England besides, unless Newcastle be the exception. It might have been Pluto's own metropolis, shrouded in sulphurous vapour, and, indeed, our approach to it had been by the valley of the shadow of death, through a tunnel three miles in length, quite traversing the breadth and depth of a mountainous hill. After passing Sheffield, the scenery became softer, gentler, yet more picturesque. At one point we saw what I believe to be the utmost northern verge of Sherwood Forest, not consisting, however, of thousand-year oaks, extant from Robin Hood's days, but of young and thriving plantations, which will require a century or two of slow English growth to give them much breadth of shade. Earl Fitzwilliam's property lies in this neighborhood, and probably his castle was hidden among some soft depth of foliage not far off. Farther onward the country grew quite level around us, whereby I judged that we must now be in Lincolnshire, and shortly after six o'clock we caught the first glimpse of the cathedral towers, though they loomed scarcely huge enough for our preconceived idea of them. But as we grew nearer, the great edifice began to assert itself, making us acknowledge it to be larger than our receptivity could take in. At the railway station we found no cab, it being an unknown vehicle in Lincoln, but only an omnibus belonging to the Saracen's Head, which the driver recommended as the best hotel in the city, and took us thither accordingly. It received us hospitably, 
and looked comfortable enough, though, like the hotels of most old English towns, it had a musty fragrance of antiquity, such as I have smelt in a seldom-opened London church, where the broad aisle is paved with tombstones. The house was of an ancient fashion, the entrance into its interior courtyard being through an arch, in the side of which is the door of the hotel. There are long corridors, an intricate arrangement of passages, and an up-and-down meandering of staircases, amid which it would be no marvel to encounter some forgotten guest who had gone astray a hundred years ago, and was still seeking for his bedroom while the rest of his generation were in their graves. There is no exaggerating the confusion of mind that seizes upon a stranger in the bewildering geography of a great old-fashioned English inn. The hotel stands in the principal street of Lincoln, and within a very short distance of one of the ancient city gates, which is arched across the public way, with a smaller arch for foot-passengers on either side. The whole, a grey, time-non, ponderous, shadowy structure, through the dark vista of which you look into the Middle Ages. The street is narrow, and retains many antique peculiarities, though, unquestionably, English domestic architecture has lost its most impressive features in the course of the last century. In this respect, there are finer old towns than Lincoln, Chester, for instance, and Shrewsbury, which last is unusually rich in those quaint and stately edifices where the gentry of the shire used to make their winter abodes in a provincial metropolis. Almost everywhere nowadays there is a monotony of modern brick or stuccoed fronts, hiding houses that are older than ever, but obliterating the picturesque antiquity of the street. Between seven and eight o'clock, it being still broad daylight in these long English days, we set out to pay a preliminary visit to the exterior of the cathedral. Passing through the stone bow, as the city gate close by is called, we ascended a street which grew steeper and narrower as we advanced, till at last it got to be the steepest street I ever climbed, so steep that any carriage, if left to itself, would rattle downward much faster than it could possibly be drawn up. Being almost the only hill in Lincolnshire, the inhabitants seemed disposed to make the most of it. The houses on each side had no very remarkable aspect, except one with a stone portal and carved ornaments, which is now a dwelling-place for poverty-stricken people, but may have been an aristocratic abode in the days of the Norman kings, to whom its style of architecture dates back. This is called the Jewess's house, having been inhabited by a woman of that faith who was hanged six hundred years ago. And still the street grew steeper and steeper. Certainly the bishop and clergy of Lincoln ought not to be fat men, but a very spiritual, saint-like, almost angelic habit, if it be a frequent part of their ecclesiastical duty to climb this hill. For it is a real penance, and was probably performed as such, and groaned over accordingly in monkish times. Formerly, on the day of his installation, the bishop used to ascend the hill barefoot, and was doubtless cheered and invigorated by looking upward to the grandeur that was to console him for the humility of his approach. We, likewise, were beckoned onward by glimpses of the cathedral towers, and finally, attaining an open square on the summit, we saw an old Gothic gateway to the left hand, and another to the right. 
the latter had apparently been a part of the exterior defences of the cathedral, at a time when the edifice was fortified. The west front rose behind. We passed through one of the side arches of the Gothic portal, and found ourselves in the cathedral close, a wide level space, where the great old minster has fair room to sit, looking down on the ancient structures that surround it, all of which in former days were the habitations of its dignitaries and officers. Some of them are still occupied as such, though others are in too neglected and dilapidated a state to seem worthy of so splendid an establishment. Unless it be Salisbury Close, however, which is incomparably rich as regards the old residences that belong to it, I remember no more comfortably picturesque precincts round any other cathedral. But, in truth, almost every cathedral close, in turn, has seemed to me the loveliest, coziest, safest, least wind-shaken, most decorous, and most enjoyable shelter that ever the thrift and selfishness of mortal man contrived for himself. How delightful to combine all this with the service of the temple! Lincoln Cathedral is built of a yellowish-brown stone, which appears either to have been largely restored, or else does not assume the hoary, crumbly surface that gives such a venerable aspect to most of the ancient churches and castles in England. In many parts the recent restorations are quite evident, but other, and much the larger portions, can scarcely have been touched for centuries, for there are still the gargoyles, perfect, or with broken noses, as the case may be, but showing that variety and fertility of grotesque extravagance which no modern imitation can effect. There are innumerable niches, too, up the whole height of the towers, above and around the entrance, and all over the walls, most of them empty, but a few containing the lamentable remnants of headless saints and angels. It is singular what a native animosity lives in the human heart against carved images, insomuch that, whether they represent Christian saint or pagan deity, all unsophisticated men seize the first safe opportunity to knock off their heads. In spite of all dilapidations, however, the effect of the west front of the cathedral is still exceedingly rich, being covered from massive base to airy summit with the minutest details of sculpture and carving. At least it was so once, and even now the spiritual impression of its beauty remains so strong that we have to look twice to see that much of it has been obliterated. I have seen a cherry stone carved all over by a monk, so minutely that it must have cost him half a lifetime of labor, and this cathedral front seems to have been elaborated in a monkish spirit, like that cherry stone. Not that the result is in the least petty, but miraculously grand, and all the more so for the faithful beauty of the smallest details. An elderly maid, seeing us looking up at the west front, came to the door of an adjacent house, and called to inquire if we wished to go into the cathedral, but as there would have been a dusky twilight beneath its roof, like the antiquity that has sheltered itself within, we declined for the present. So we merely walked around the exterior and thought it more beautiful than that of York, though, on recollection, I hardly deem it so majestic and mighty as that. It is vain to attempt a description, 
or seek even to record the feeling which the edifice inspires. It does not impress the beholder as an inanimate object, but as something that has a vast, quiet, long-enduring life of its own, a creation which man did not build, though in some way or other it is connected with him, and kindred to human nature. In short, I fall straightway to talking nonsense when I try to express my inner sense of this and other cathedrals. While we stood in the close at the eastern end of the minster, the clock chimed the quarters, and then the great Tom, who hangs in the rude tower, told us it was eight o'clock, in far the sweetest and mightiest accents that I ever heard from any bell, slow and solemn, and allowing the profound reverberations of each stroke to die away before the next one fell. It was still broad daylight in that upper region of the town, and would be so for some time longer, but the evening atmosphere was getting sharp and cool. We therefore descended the steep street, our younger companion running before us, and gathering such headway that I fully expected him to break his head against some projecting wall. In the morning we took a fly, an English term for an exceedingly sluggish vehicle, and drove up to the minster by a road rather less steep and abrupt than the one we had previously climbed. We alighted before the west front, and sent our charioteer in quest of the verger, but as he was not immediately to be found, a young girl led us into the nave. We found it very grand, it is needless to say, but not so grand, methought, as the vast nave of York Cathedral, especially beneath the great central tower of the latter. Unless a writer intends a professedly architectural description, there is but one set of phrases in which to talk of all of the cathedrals in England and elsewhere. They are alike in their great features, an acre or two of stone flags for a pavement, rows of vast columns supporting a vaulted roof at a dusky height, great windows, sometimes richly bedimmed with ancient or modern stained glass, and an elaborately carved screen between the nave and chancel, breaking the vista that might else be of such glorious length, and which is further choked up by a massive organ, in spite of which obstructions you catch the broad, variegated glimmer of the painted east window, where a hundred saints wear their robes of transfiguration. Behind the screen are the carved oaken stalls of the chapter and prebendaries, the bishop's throne, the pulpit, the altar, and whatever else may furnish out the holy of holies. Nor must we forget the range of chapels, once dedicated to Catholic saints, but which have now lost their individual consecration, nor the old monuments of kings, warriors, and prelates in the side-aisles of the chancel. In close contiguity to the main body of the cathedral is the chapter-house, which here at Lincoln is at Salisbury, and is supported by one central pillar rising from the floor and putting forth branches like a tree to hold up the roof. Adjacent to the chapter-house are the cloisters, extending round a quadrangle, and paved with lettered tombstones, the more antique of which have had their inscriptions half obliterated by the feet of monks, taking their noontide exercise in these sheltered walks five hundred years ago. Some of these old burial stones, although with ancient crosses engraved upon them, have been made to serve as memorials to dead people of very recent date. 
In the chancel, among the tombs of forgotten bishops and knights, we saw an immense slab of stone purporting to be the monument of Catherine Swinford, wife of John of Gaunt. Also here was the shrine of the little St. Hugh, that Christian child who was fabled to have been crucified by the Jews of Lincoln. The cathedral is not particularly rich in monuments, for it suffered grievous outrage and dilapidation, both at the Reformation and in Cromwell's time. This latter iconoclast is especially bad odor with the sextons and vergers of most of the old churches which I have visited. His soldiers stabled their steeds in the nave of Lincoln Cathedral, and hacked and hewed the monkish sculptures, and the ancestral memorials of great families, quite at their wicked and plebeian pleasure. Nevertheless, there are some most exquisite and marvelous specimens of flowers, foliage, and grapevines, and miracles of stonework twined about arches, as if the material had been as soft as wax in the cunning sculptor's hands, the leaves being represented with all their veins, so that you would almost think it petrified nature, for which he sought to steal the praise of art. Here, too, were those grotesque faces which always grin at you from the projections of monkish architecture, as if the builders had gone mad with their own deep solemnity, or dreaded such a catastrophe, unless permitted to throw in something ineffably absurd. Originally, it is supposed, all the pillars of this great edifice, and all these magic sculptures, were polished to the utmost degree of luster nor is it unreasonable to think that the artists would have taken these further pains, when they had already bestowed so much labor in working out their conceptions to the extremest point. But, at present, the whole interior of the cathedral is smeared over with a yellowish wash, the very meanest hue imaginable, and for which somebody's soul has a bitter reckoning to undergo. In the center of the grassy quadrangle about which the cloisters perambulate is a small, mean brick building, with a locked door. Our guide—I forgot to say that we had been captured by a verger, in black, and with a white tie, but of a lusty and jolly aspect—our guide unlocked this door and disclosed a flight of steps. At the bottom appeared what I should have taken to be a large square of dim, worn, and faded oil-carpeting which might originally have been painted of a rather gaudy pattern. This was a Roman tessellated pavement, made of small colored bricks, or pieces of burnt clay. It was accidentally discovered there, and has not been meddled with further than by removing the superincumbent earth and rubbish. Nothing else occurs to me just now to be recorded about the interior of the cathedral, except that we saw a place where the stone pavement had been worn away by the feet of ancient pilgrims scraping upon it, as they knelt down before a shrine of the Virgin. Leaving the minster, we now went along a street of more venerable appearance than we had heretofore seen, bordered with houses, the high-peaked roofs of which were covered with red earthen tiles. It led us to a Roman arch, which was once the gateway of a fortification, and has been striding across the English street ever since the latter was a faint village path, and for centuries before. The arch is about four hundred yards from the cathedral, and it is to be noticed that there are Roman remains in all this neighborhood, some above ground, and doubtless innumerable more beneath it, for, as in ancient Rome itself, 
an inundation of accumulated soil seems to have swept over what was the surface of that earlier day. The gateway which I am speaking about is probably buried to a third of its height, and perhaps has a perfect Roman pavement, if sought for at the original depth, as that which runs beneath the arch of Titus. It is a rude and massive structure, and seems as stalwart now as it could have been two thousand years ago, and though time has gnawed it externally, he has made what amends he could by crowning its rough and broken summit with grass and weeds, and planting tufts of yellow flowers on the projections up and down the sides. These are the ruins of a Norman castle, built by the conqueror, in pretty close proximity to the cathedral, but the old gateway is obstructed by a modern door of wood, and we were denied admittance because some part of the precincts are used as a prison. We now rambled about on the broad back of the hill, which, besides the minster and ruined castle, is the site of some stately and queer old houses, and many mean little hovels. I suspect that all or most of the life of the present day has subsided into the lower town, and that only priests, poor people, and prisoners dwell in these upper regions. In the wide, dry moat at the base of the castle wall are clustered whole colonies of small houses, some of brick, but the larger portion built of old stones which once made part of the Norman keep, or of Roman structures that existed before the conqueror's castle was ever dreamed about. They are like toadstools that spring up from the mould of a decaying tree. Ugly as they are, they add wonderfully to the picturesqueness of the scene, being quite as valuable in that respect as the great, broad, ponderous ruin of the castle-keep, which rose high above our heads, heaving its huge grey mass out of a bank of green foliage and ornamental shrubbery, such as lilacs and other flowering plants, in which its foundations were completely hidden. After walking quite around the castle, I made an excursion through the Roman gateway, along a pleasant and level road bordered with dwellings of various character. One or two were houses of gentility, with delightful and shadowy lawns before them. Many had those high, red-tiled roofs, ascending into acutely pointed gables, which seemed to belong to the same epoch as some of the edifices in our own earlier towns. And there were pleasant-looking cottages, very sylvan and rural, with hedges so dense and high, fencing them in, as almost to hide them up to the eaves of their thatched roofs. In front of one of these I saw various images, crosses, and relics of antiquity, among which were fragments of old Catholic tombstones, disposed by way of ornament. We now went home to the Saracen's Head, and as the weather was very unpropitious, and it sprinkled a little now and then, I would gladly have felt myself released from further thraldom to the cathedral. But it had taken possession of me, and would not let me be at rest, so at length I found myself compelled to climb the hill again, between daylight and dusk. A mist was now hovering about the upper height of the great central tower, so as to dim and half-obliterate its battlements and pinnacles, even while I stood in the close beneath it. It was the most impressive view that I had had. The whole lower part of the structure was seen with perfect distinctness, but at the very summit the mist was so dense as to form an actual cloud, as well defined as ever I saw resting on a mountain-top. Really and literally, 
Here was a cloud-capped tower. The entire cathedral, too, transfigured itself into a richer beauty and more imposing majesty than ever. The longer I looked, the better I loved it. Its exterior is certainly far more beautiful than that of York Minster, and its finer effect is due, I think, to the many peaks in which the structure ascends, and to the pinnacles which, as it were, repeat and re-echo them into the sky. York Cathedral is comparatively square and angular in its general effect, but in this at Lincoln there is a continual mystery of variety, so that at every glance you are aware of a change, and a disclosure of something new, yet working a harmonious development of what you have heretofore seen. The West Front is unspeakably grand, and may be read over and over again forever, and still show undetected meanings, like a great, broad page of marvellous writing in black letter. So many sculptured ornaments there are, blossoming out before your eyes, and grey statues that have grown there since you looked last, and empty niches, and a hundred airy canopies beneath which carved images used to be, and where they will show themselves again if you gaze long enough. But I will not say another word about the cathedral. We spent the rest of the day within the sombre precincts of the Saracen's Head, reading yesterday's Times, the guide-book of Lincoln, and the directory of the eastern counties. Dismal as the weather was, the street beneath our window was enlivened with a great bustle and turmoil of people all the evening, because it was Saturday night, and they had accomplished their week's toil, received their wages, and were making their small purchases against Sunday, and enjoying themselves as well as they knew how. A band of music passed to and fro several times, with the raindrops falling into the mouth of the brazen trumpet and pattering on the bass drum. A spirit shop opposite the hotel had a vast run of custom, and a coffee dealer in the open air found occasional vent for his commodity, in spite of the cold water that dripped into the cups. The whole breadth of the street, between the stone bow and the bridge across the Witham, was thronged to overflowing and humming with human life. Observing in the guide-book that a steamer runs on the river Witham between Lincoln and Boston, I inquired of the waiter, and learned that she was to start on Monday at ten o'clock. Thinking it might be an interesting trip, and a pleasant variation of our customary mode of travel, we determined to make the voyage. The Witham flows through Lincoln, crossing the main street under an arched bridge of Gothic construction, a little below the Saracen's Head. It has more the appearance of a canal than of a river, in its passage through the town, being bordered with hewn stone masonwork on each side, and provided with one or two locks. The steamer proved to be small, dirty, and altogether inconvenient. The early morning had been bright, but the sky now lowered upon us with a sulky English temper, and we had not long put off before we felt an ugly wind from the German Ocean blowing right in our teeth. There were a number of passengers on board, country people such as travel by third class on the railway, for I suppose nobody but ourselves ever dreamt of voyaging by the steamer for the sake of what he might happen upon in the way of river scenery. We bothered a good while about getting through a preliminary lock, nor, when fairly under way, did we ever accomplish, I think, six miles in an hour. Constant delays were caused, moreover, by stopping to take up passengers and freight, 
not at regular landing-places, but anywhere along the green banks. The scenery was identical with that of the railway, because the latter runs along by the riverside through the whole distance, or nowhere departs from it except to make a short cut across some sinuosity, so that our only advantage lay in the drawling, snail-like slothfulness of our progress, which allowed us time enough and to spare for the objects along the shore. Unfortunately there was nothing, or next to nothing, to be seen, the country being one unvaried level over the whole thirty miles of our voyage, not a hill in sight, neither near or far, except that solitary one on the summit of which we had left Lincoln Cathedral. And the cathedral was our landmark for four hours or more, and at last rather faded out than was hidden by any intervening object. It would have been a pleasantly lazy day enough if the rough and bitter wind had not blown directly in our faces and chilled us through, in spite of the sunshine that soon succeeded a sprinkle or two of rain. These English east winds, which prevail from February till June, are greater nuisances than the east wind of our own Atlantic coast, although they do not bring mist and storm as with us, but some of the sunniest weather that England sees. Under their influence the sky smiles and is villainous. The landscape was tamed to the last degree, but had an English character that was abundantly worth our looking at. A green luxuriance of early grass, old high-roofed farmhouses surrounded by their stone barns and ricks of hay and grain, ancient villages with the square grey tower of a church seen afar over the level country, amid the cluster of red roofs, here and there a shadowy grove of venerable trees, surrounding what was perhaps an Elizabethan hall, though it looked more like the abode of some rich yeoman. Once, too, we saw the tower of a medieval castle, that of Tattershall, built by a Cromwell, but whether of the protector's family I cannot tell. But the gentry do not appear to have settled multitudinously in this tract of country, nor is it to be wondered at, since a lover of the picturesque would as soon think of settling in Holland. The river retains its canal-like aspect all along, and only in the latter part of its course does it become more than wide enough for the little steamer to turn itself around, at broadest not more than twice that width. End of section 11